junctures from Liverpool, England. People all over the world are just beginning to talk about the Beatles. My model of business is the Beatles. You know, they were four very talented guys. One, two, three. Hello, my name's Paul McCartney. This is Ringo Starr. This is John Lennon. I'm George Harrison. Welcome back to a very special episode of the Here, There, and Everywhere podcast. I'm your host, Jack Lawless. Today, I'd like to welcome back on the podcast three crowd favorite guests, Josh Turner, Tomo Fujita, and David Bennett. For the first time ever, all four of us are going to discuss in depth one of our favorite bands of all time, the Beatles. But this time around, we're not only going to discuss their influence on us, we're actually going to take a deep dive into their music. That means we're going to talk about our favorite Beatles eras and albums, what makes their music so great, if they really were good musicians at a technical level, George Martin's contributions to their music, what we think of their final single Now and Then, and the use of artificial intelligence in their music, and so much more. Thank you all for listening to this episode and to every episode that was released this year. If this is your first time listening, be sure to follow this podcast so you can keep up to date with all of our new episodes. And if you are not subscribed to Josh, Tomo, or David's YouTube channels yet, I've included the links to their respective channels in the podcast description, so please be sure to subscribe to them. They're some of my favorite musicians and creators out there. And with that being said, let's jump into the episode. Hey guys, thank you all so much for coming back on the podcast again. I'm so excited for today's conversation because we're going to be talking all about the music of the Beatles and the things that make it so great and timeless. So let's start off the conversation today with a simple but hard to answer question and eventually we'll dive a little deeper. Josh, can you start us off by telling us what is your favorite Beatles album or era and why? Um, so you, you sent some of these questions in advance and I was actually just the other day pondering this question and thinking about how I don't really have, um, a satisfactory answer to it. Maybe, um, I think my favorite Beatles album, my favorite Beatles album tends to change with the season of life that I'm in to a certain extent, I think. But, um, but the, the first one that I discovered and the one that I would say I come back to the most often is probably Abbey Road. Um, yeah, I, I, I almost feel like that's like an underdog pick because I think a lot of people tend to look to their more, uh, the, the time periods when they were more in change or when they were getting along together as a band and so on. Because in some ways, uh, Abbey Road was kind of like an epitaph, you know, in terms of where they were in their career. But uh, I don't know. There, there was just something about that one from the time I was a single digit age that um, that album just feels like it's carved out of a single piece of marble to me. Like it's just it's just perfect in every regard. It took the whole uh, world of songwriting and uh, producing and engineering and, and stuff, you know, a decade to catch up with it, it feels like. So, um, yeah, I, it, it, it does tend to change. But if I had to give my most frequent answer over the years, it would be um, it would be Abbey Road. I also have a great fondness for the sort of like 66 to 67 time period um, when they were really moving like from revolver into into the psychedelia type stuff and 
I think they released a lot of their strongest and most interesting singles during that time period. But as an album, uh, Abbey Road. So I have to ask, what did you think of Maxwell's Silver Hammer? I mean, you know, it's goofy, but um, but on an <laughs> album that also contains I Want You, She's So Heavy, like like you kind of need a Maxwell Silver Hammer. Like, I think that's just like it's part of it helps establish equilibrium. You know, it's the same with uh, Octopus's Garden, you know, but also like I'm just as I as I mentioned the last time I was uh, I was uh, lucky enough to chat with you. I'm just a Paul fan for life. And so my my tolerance for the silliness factor is uh, very high. <laughs> Me too. I'm 100 percent on the same page. Tomo, how about you? What is your favorite Beatles album or era? Yes. First of all, I'm from Japan originally, uh, you know, came to United States. And when I was in Japan, we all listened to Beatles, like, compilation. That was really popular. Blue album and red album, white album. Those three are really popular in Japan. And I was, you know, checking FM and I just, you know, listened to these songs. But eventually I realized, like, like this album, Magical Mystery Tour, when I heard this one, it's something really, really changed. Of course, I like an early album, but this one really has a big impression that having a rock band has a, you know, strength in it. And when I was a kid, as I was like only 12 listening to this, I thought really different. And I like an old album too, just like the judge said, you know, you know, I mean, so many is great, but that that was really made me wow. The band, you know, so a lot of great impression on the album, you know. I agree. I mean, one of my favorite things about Magical Mystery Tour, and part of what I think makes it so good, is the fact that, like, creatively, they were still at their peak, but the pressure from Sgt. Pepper and having to release what was marketed as like the best album of the century. All of that pressure was off, and they had time to make some songs that were really fun and carefree. So I I definitely appreciate that aspect of that album as well. Wow, you know, yeah, that's that's great. Great, great way to put it, yeah. David, what about you? What's your favorite album or era? Um, I always go for Sgt. Pepper, but I'm glad that you said the era rather than album because I think so often the best songs, one way or another, didn't actually wind up on the album. And for me, my absolute favorite Beatles track, anything track, is um, Strawberry Fields Forever, which was, I think, the first track they recorded for Sgt. Pepper, but then eventually got released separately because they wanted to release a single and then it wound up a Magical Mystery Tour. So, yeah, that era when they were at the height of their powers in consideration to like getting the studio to sound weird and in ways that had never been done before. That's the era I love. So it's, Strawberry Fields, but also things like I Am The Walrus, which is yet another song that's not on Sgt. Pepper, but feels like it's in that era of of what they were doing. Yeah, no, totally. I agree. And I, and I think one of the coolest things about Strawberry Fields is how it progressed from John's original acoustic demo to the finished studio product. Oh, I mean, yeah. it just it really makes you appreciate their creativity within the studio. Definitely. Definitely. It's it's almost a perfect example of how they use the studio as sort of an instrument, because that song just if you had an acoustic guitar and just played it, it would be totally different. Oh, yeah, it really would be. And, you know, I, I think that's a great segue 
into the next topic that I'd like to discuss with you guys. So I'm wondering in which aspect of the Beatles' musical or career progression is their growth as artists most evident? And I mean this in a way of, like, if we compare their chord progressions or instrument choices in their earlier songs to their later ones, or anything along those lines, how do you think that their progression is the most evident? Well, um, it's tricky. I mean, I think that it's tempting to say the songwriting just because, you know, they progressed from I Want to Hold Your Hand to, you know, much more complicated, nuanced, you know, emotional uh, experiences. But then again, they also kind of came full circle, you know. Um, and they so, and, and like, just like writing love songs for all of them, honestly, was such a through line. Um that I think that it, it did it it developed and it matured, but it actually didn't change all that much over the years. I mean, I think that just the way that the things sound obviously is another huge part of it. Um, just the fidelity of the recordings and the density of the arrangements and so on. Um, and part of that is attributable to just the march of technology, because obviously the '60s y you span a huge um, kind of divide in the history of recording, where you've got the hyper literal like one track tape era of the 50s and then you know all the way up into the multi-track extravaganza of uh the 70s and i guess they were kind of in conversation with that right because they were pushing the boundaries of what was possible with with recording but then they were also responding to what was becoming available um so i think that it's honestly it's just um the sonic like for lack of a better term like the sonic textures that they were going for i think the i think the level of fearlessness that they had um is what maybe changed the most. I think that they started out as a rock band and they were doing the rock band thing. They were playing covers. They were doing what a lot of their peers were doing. And um, one of the things that's just so amazing about the arc of their career is that rather than, you know, as their fame grew, it wasn't like, a, oh, shoot, we better just do what we did on the last album. Uh, because what if it's a flop, right? It was just like, what's what's an even weirder thing we can do? What's a way we can push ourselves even further? I think that's the way that they develop the most over time is um, just finding new and stranger ways to grow. And even, I think that you can even fit, um, let it be into that narrative because uh, I think that by the time it got to 1969, 1970, one of the scariest things that they could do was just go back to being... Um, a, basically a four-member band performing live takes of things because they had gotten so far from that in the past four years. Um, so yeah, I think, I think, uh, I guess if I were to sum it up, fearlessness, I think is, that's the thing that developed the most over time. Well, overall, like every song to me, it's just core, chord progression, harmony is so rich compared to any other band. And like just said, you know, from 50s, 60s, then they use um, multi-track recording and really effectively making a lot of different, you know, effect of sound, you know, uh, arrangement. But still to me, like chord progression with yesterday, that's a lot of a, a lot of a um, quality in two minutes. That's really amazing. Especially I, I am an instrumental, guitar player tend to play a little longer song. And so I always love to hear Beatles and Late Night and really think two minutes and you can really tell the story. And just, um, and and plus to me, keep, keep continuing to write many songs 
and more and more. And my my wild guess is they are in England thinking about, okay, I want to play. We'll play like blues, like American people, but we can't do it well. So let's make more original song, you know? <laughs> Maybe that's how they kept doing it, but great way. Um, for me, I think the thing that made the Beatles so special is how they use the studio. And you can see that so vividly when you look at 1966, when they did their final tour. And even to quit touring and focus on being a studio band was unprecedented. And, you know, Brian Epstein thought this was the end of the Beatles, but actually it was kind of just the beginning. And nowadays, I think... Um, new fans of the Beatles are actually drawn more to that post-66 music where it gets just so wildly creative so quickly because they're no longer thinking in the same way that every band has ever thought, like, how are we going to perform this on stage? They're just thinking, we're going to make music for music's sake and just make it as wild as possible. And, you know, looking at Revolver, you know, a year before with with Help, um, it's just like day and night. And it's just unbelievable the sudden change that they had in that moment. Do you think that it was a scary decision to make for the Beatles to stop touring and start making music that was completely different than what they've been making before? I think they thought, I think they experienced so much in that uh, initial run that they had, um, however many years it was, you know, two or three years of intense touring, intense publicity, and they already had enough money, they already were tired of the game. People were talking in terms of rock and roll being a passing fad. I think they just thought, you know, screw it. I don't want to be doing this anymore. Let's just do what we want and just see what happens. And and the boldness of that decision um, is what made the Beatles not just a great band that were, you know, came and went in the 60s, but a timeless band that will now last, you know, forever. Yes. And if I'm not wrong, were the Beatles like the first popular music act to really change up their identity as the years went on? I think I know that a big a big motivation was a um, big inspiration was um, the Beach Boys Pet Sounds and how they used the studio um, in these weird and wonderful ways like good vibrations you couldn't have performed that on stage and ha have it anywhere near as interesting as the record but yeah as far as I'm aware I don't think any band at the height of their powers had decided you know let's not sell out stadiums anymore let's just sit in our studio and make funny sounds exactly. <laughs> Yeah, I think that some of the some of the most powerful entertainers at that time were like sort of contemporaneously starting to experiment with changing their identities, but not maybe so radically as changing their entire business model. You know, like Elvis went through some phases between like the early 50s up into the 60s and, you know, and so on. And the Beach Boys, like like David's mentioning, um, had started the transition into the psychedelic Beach Boys rather than the surfing you know, be, be true to your school beach boys. But, um, but they, I think they, they, they took like the zeitgeist of like of reinvention and just like pushed it way, way further than anybody had gone. Yeah. And, and I don't think it would have worked out as well if they had followed Elvis's example of, of going into the army. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so when it comes to Beatles songs, which Beatle is mainly responsible for writing your personal favorite Beatles songs and why do you think that you're drawn to their songs in particular? Uh, well, you know, uh, as I said, as I said before on the show, it's just it's always Paul for me. Um, he uh, like like Tomo, I think the harmony is what tends to grab me the most about a lot of the Beatles songs. Um, I think 
what they were doing harmonically, aside from maybe Brian Wilson and a couple of other exceptions, was unique at the time and and remains nearly unique. Um, I think that the the line that they rode between accessibility and uh, creativity is is just like perfect. It's just like exactly where I want to be, and it appeals so directly to my sensibilities as a as a musician. And yeah, it's really the harmony that just that keeps you guessing, but also. Like I, I had this experience as a guitarist and David and Tomo, I don't know if you had this experience, but like um, the first songs I ever tried to learn were Beatles songs on guitar. And uh, I had this crazy thing where like I knew all the songs so well and they were all so singable and they all seemed so intuitive that when I sat down to try and learn them, I was mystified by how complicated the chord progressions were to all of them. Oh, and right. that, that to me is just <laughs> the genius in a nutshell of Paul especially because Paul can write a melody it's just like butter, like glass over the top of these really strange and unusual harmonies. Um, and so that, I think more than anything, is just is why I love Paul. And that's where my ear is always drawn. I mean, I think he's a great lyricist, too. Sometimes he's criticized for being too simple. Um, but I but I think that at his best, you know, he was just the most universal. So uh, and yesterday was a perfect example of that. So, yeah, that's me. This is a really hard one to pick one song, almost like. A lot of songs are very identical. It's like just that. It seems like simple, but when you sit down to figure it out, always wow, surprise. And so smooth. And sounds like just one key, but then just move to, you know, outside of it. And um, it's a great mix about like show tune or pop tune and little blues. And little jazz, but everything mixed. That's about yesterday. That's great. There's sort of two five, but then four four five. But one of my songs really influenced by Beatles because I learned jazz. So naturally, I tend to use jazz chord progression. But then Beatles, they use a lot plus six plus seven, like almost like sounds like a pentatonic, you know. And then same time beautiful line and beautiful chords. I always wonder how much John Lennon really tell Paul, we should go this way, go that way on that direction. That's always, I don't know, you know, personally, I want to know that. So I will say yesterday's best one. <laughs> Easy to say. Yeah. Well, Josh, like you said before, and Tomo, like you were just saying, when you learn these Beatles songs on an instrument, you learn how complicated these chord progressions really are. But man, when I watch each one of your breakdown or cover videos on YouTube of these songs, like Tomo, the video you made of George Harrison's guitar solo on Till There Was You. Oh, that, that, was, a, that was shocking that I didn't know those guys really play like a lot of diminished chords, augmented chords, and like, you know, flat nine sounds, guitar licks. They learn, I mean, they, they sit down and learn other people's songs really, really well. And then that song was really cool. It's almost like half jazz, half pop, you know. It's a great song. And I, actually, I use that song to teach my students. I, sometimes I give them, hey, learn this song by next week. It's, what? it's hard, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's a good, good test song. Yeah. David, what about you? Who writes your favorite Beatles songs? Um, I always think I like Paul and John equally, but then if I write a list of my favorite Beatles songs, like 80, 90% of them are John. 
Um, you know, Strawberry, Strawberry Fields I already mentioned. I Am The Walrus is also a, another big favourite of mine. Um, and almost part of the reason I think it is, is maybe it's like um, John seemed to be more willing to go to George Martin and just say, what do you think, George? Like, do something. Uh, and not really, like, steer George and just kind of give it to him. And that's I think Strawberry Fields is a great example of that, I Am The Walrus where you're almost hearing more of a George Martin composition than a John Lennon. Whereas, although Paul did use George, he had far more um, idea about what he wanted. So it was kind of George interpreting what Paul wanted, whereas with John, George was left with more free reign. And uh, I think perhaps that's why I love some of those wacky arrangements so much. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. Like, I mean, if you listen to the instrumental version of I Am the Walrus, it's like this insanely crafted and complex classical music arrangement that George Martin wrote. So mm. you're right. Maybe the Lennon-Martin songwriting team is is one that I should take note of more. Mm. I also think that um, part of what made John and Paul such a great writing team at their best was... Um, uh, John, he tended to write really angular chord progressions, like really like awkward sometimes sounding like, you know, ha- like harsh juxtapositions harmonically. And Paul was so interested in what was pretty uh, that it's really those two things working in tandem that makes many of their most memorable tunes. Um, the, I mean, yeah, like Strawberry Fields, obviously one of my favorite songs, just such a genius piece. And Paul would have never written that because that melody and my my I've, I think I've got bronchitis right now, but the melody yeah. that's like a that's from like an octatonic scale, and uh, and Paul would have never written a melodic passage like that, you know, um, and so yeah, those two guys working together because um, John was. You know, I don't know that he had the ear that Paul had, um, but he was he was, as I was saying earlier, just so fearless with where he would go harmonically. Uh, it's and it can be just extremely compelling. So, yeah, they were a great pair for that reason. Now, when it comes to the Beatles playing on their songs, do you think that their choices of instruments contributed to their sound as much as their songwriting did? For example, for those listening who might not know too much detail about the instruments that they played. At the beginning of the band, Paul played that iconic Hofner violin bass, and then he later switched to a Rickenbacker bass. And George Harrison started off with a Gretsch guitar and progressed to a Stratocaster and then a Telecaster, but they also experimented with Moog synthesizers and sitars. So what do you think about these instrument choices? You know, over the years, my perspective on instruments is has changed. I think that I used to put a lot more weight on what people were playing um, in terms of what what it contributed to their sound and the, and the choices that they made. And as a guitarist, I mean, I definitely, to an extent, do make different choices when I'm playing different kinds of instruments. I think that every different instrument has things that it likes to do and things that it doesn't like to do. And um, it's good, you know, you as the player are going to kind of intuit some of those things and it's going to influence the choices that you make both in terms of writing and performance. Um, But I don't think it extends much beyond that. I think that there's a subtle, to me, there's a subtle influence that's imparted by like, oh, if I'm playing a Strat, then like this kind of line is going to feel more natural, right? Like as opposed to a Rickenbacker or whatever. Um, I think that, I think that, 
part of the reason that Paul was able to be so insanely dexterous in a lot of his bass lines is because like the Hoffner's a little bit shorter scale and he came from a guitar background so he's playing with a flat pick and he didn't have to develop like fingerstyle technique um but you know but he could have played any shorter scale bass and the same Paul bass lines would have probably come out um I think it contributes to the sound of the recordings and what makes them so special but then that's what the engineers are doing too you know because like you play a strat through one kind of amp and it sounds super different than if you, you know, play it, you play it through a Vox AC30 and then you play it through a Leslie, it's going to sound like two different instruments. So it's really just, it's really to me just what any given instrument was um, bringing out of them as players, you know. Sometimes when you pick up a particular guitar, I think it's easier to, you'll find inspiration in a new instrument, right? Like sometimes it's like, okay, well, I wrote this song on this instrument because like it just felt like, pe people say like it felt like it was inside the guitar like waiting to come out this song or whatever. So it may have been that, but like, I don't know, I, I, I think it's often overstated personally, the influence that the instruments had on what they did. Yeah, I, I it was a very interesting um, question. I love about equipment, you know, amps to guitars, I love, but about the Beatles to me, it's all about songwriting about the band. So I never really pay attention what's the difference between, you know, different earlier has that earlier sounds and the 60 has a little bit more, you know, that sophisticated sound. But to me, not really a huge amount influence on the songs to me, you know. Yeah, but um, but I like Hoffman bass sound, definitely some of the great you know guitar sounds it's great for lines and rhythm guitar funny when i think about i love a stratocaster but when i think about beatles a stratocaster is a little too 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 not too pretty it's almost now really stand out <laughs> you know yeah should it should have a little bit more like you know something something different like this one pickup makes more you know particular sounds you know i, I like that you know, I like kind of limitation of instruments so that, you know, instrument really gives you different zone to write a song like that. When it comes to instruments in the Beatles, um, it's kind of similar to what I was saying earlier about how after 66, there was just, just this massive change where before that, they were very much like a classic um, archetypal rock and roll band, a couple guitars, a bass and drums. They occasionally got a keyboard involved of some sort, but it wasn't very practical to, especially in the 60s, to perform with any lineup beyond just guitars and drums. And then the moment they get in the studio, it's almost like the Beatles are, are famous for, more famous sometimes for their instruments than some of their songs, like the Metatron, the sitar, and also their, their use of strings and brass. And these instruments that were very um, foreign to pop music at the time, but now, you know, you, you can't really, it wouldn't be weird at all to hear strings or horns or anything like that on a, on a pop song. Yeah. I think actually today, I think, to, I think David makes an interesting point there about like, I think that the instrument choices actually did make a huge, um, imprint on, on the Beatles sound, but it wasn't the core instruments that they were associated with. It tended to be more on a song by song basis. Choosing to start something with a Mellotron is now like anytime anybody hears the flute, you know the flute samples on a mellotron is like oh just like strawberry fields you know anytime somebody somebody hears like an electric harpsichord it's like oh it sounds just like because so like i i think that the the distinctive and super beatlesy instruments really weren't the things that they were necessarily writing the songs on it was more the things that um grabbed your ear and set each track apart in the studio now while we're on the subject of 
talking about the Beatles playing instruments. One common criticism is that they were not the most technically proficient musicians. What are some characteristics of their playing that stand out to you guys? And honestly, what do you think of them as musicians? Yeah, you know, I've heard I've heard that critique before. I think um, I, th- I think it might have been Quincy Jones, maybe, who put it very colorfully one time. And I won't um, I won't I won't recite it just in case it's a, a misattribution. But uh, it was not a kind remark upon the Beatles' technical ability. Right. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I th- to me it's just so immaterial that like they weren't technical masters of their craft. Uh, I think they were technical. I think they were masters of songwriting and. It's kind of it's kind of a question of what do you what do you want out of a band? I think it's tempting to when a band is put on as high a podium as the Beatles are, it's tempting to want to hold them up to every highest standard possible. But uh, I think that critiquing their technical prowess on their instruments is just completely losing sight of the forest for the trees. You know, um, I I think that uh, technical skill does not always go hand in hand with the ability to write great and memorable songs. Uh, and oftentimes I think it can actually be, uh, something that gets in the way of writing great songs because I think the temptation to, um, chop out, as we say, you know, in the music world is, is so great that you can lose sight of the sort of pure emotional thread that, um, that, that a great song should be. So, uh, I think that they, spent their time and their talent wisely uh with instruments i think that they wrote a lot of really memorable parts even if they weren't the most dexterous parts in the world and in terms of like who was a great player uh it's got to be well i mean on I mean, all of them all of them did did such great things like even ringo who catches all the heat right like ringo's influence because of his technical limitations was enormous on the world of rock drums um, and the choices that he made are just so distinctive that like, who cares, you know, whether he can beat Stuart Copeland in a drum off, like it just doesn't matter because like when he wrote great parts for the song, uh, that that's kind of it to me, you know, and, and it's the same with the guitar solos. It's the same with, uh, and actually another area where they were genuinely very technically proficient that's often overlooked is their harmony singing, uh, their ability to blend three-part harmony and write three-part harmonies, uh, was one of the best in in the decade, um, easily up there with the Beach Boys, except it was just three parts instead of five. They, I think, developed a unique language in terms of voicing. Um, they they were able to blend timbres so tightly that it's hard to tell who's singing which part. Um, so, yeah, I, I I always kind of brush that criticism off. I think it's a, a waste of time. This is yeah. This this is a, a very popular topic that people talk about. They're just fine as a musician, and um, they're a great songwriter, a great band member. What, 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 see, I play jazz, I practice guitar, you know, and um, I like a lot of different things. But then that's become distraction about playing guitar, improvising, but not write any songs, you know. I only have, uh, I counted, I, I only have about less than 50 songs. And I'm 58 years old, you know. So I was like, wow, I had to hurry up, you know. So sometimes I play more things, and that's really distraction for the songwriter. So to me, practicing guitar or write more songs in the studio, you know, I wish I can do more, like, you know, go to the studio, songwriting, right? 
And uh, like Josh said, you know, Ringo too, it's some people criticize about his technique, but that's a perfect drama. When you have a band, if somebody plays too much and everybody plays so well, then what happens? Everything becomes distraction. And every song becomes so long. Every song has too many, too many ideas. You never settle down, you know. So to me, they had a perfect proficiency in every instrument that they know diminished chords, they know, you know, um, augmented chords, they know a lot of chords that are very tasteful support the song, not just impress people play like everywhere, you know what I mean? That's, the, that's like, I teach so many people and I understand a lot of different, you know, virtuosity and, you know, technique, but to me, I don't really care about technique. I really, I care about more song. That's all you guys love Beatles, you know? And, uh, and yes, just a guitar solo. I love guitar solo on Beatles because it's a melody. It's not scale. It's not chops. That's what I like about Beatles, you know? I want to say more, but it just, they are perfect to me. Yeah, I, I just want to chime in on what Tomo just said there, like, We've cut, we talked about how much they could fit into a two-minute song. I think that if they were more technically yeah. proficient, they probably wouldn't be two-minute songs. There's too much temptation. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. What happens is if you have more technique, then you have more possibilities. You want to try more. And ended up, you expect more things that are not necessary. Yeah. Sometimes it's less is better. In a Japanese saying, Eat, you know, two thirds of food, not whole. That's good for health. That's always say, you know. <laughs> but <laughs> well, I think Tom opened it well in in the sense that they knew enough to um, not have it limit them. So they knew not just the major and minor chords, but like diminished and augmented, like you said. And they had enough proficiency that they can add a bit of flair here and there, but didn't get carried away. Uh, I do think a secret weapon that did help them, though, is, is George Martin, where quite literally, if they wanted a more sophisticated um, musical moment, particularly a piano solo, they would just give it to George Martin, like uh, Lovely Rita or Rocky Raccoon or most famously In My Life. They quite literally say, here you go, George, there's um, 16 bars, like, do something. Yeah, definitely. And he w would just suddenly show off and create the most tasteful but amazing instrumental passage. Can I add one more thing? I'm so glad they didn't know tablature. <laughs> <laughs> they they use more imagination and they learn great song. That's why they know you know diminished or augmented or you know minor major seventh chord. And yeah, then again, David, I agree. George always had brilliant idea about classical you know melody over the song or you know strings arrangement and. Uh, yeah, I always wonder how much he really influenced the chords and everything. But uh, yeah, it just, everybody did an amazing job. <laughs> so which moment in a Beatles song is the most memorable for you as a musician? Oh, man. Uh, it's usually, gosh, it's probably probably has to be... Um, 
the just the kick of the song like the the first like three seconds of the song as is usually what's the most memorable and it's funny because i think that's something that i've understood at an intuitive level for a long time but i've never nobody's ever asked me that before and i've never thought about it consciously but i think it's something that a lot of beatles nerds maybe quietly pride themselves on is that if you hear the first like one second of a beatles song you can name the song (laughs) and uh that is a testament to you know it's a testament to george martin certainly but but they themselves as, as composers too that um it's not just like, all right, you know, eight bar vamp for free. And then we're in verse one. You know, it's like every every single song has a slightly different introduction. Something obviously has that incredible drum fill that starts it. You know, um, yesterday you've got that distinctive whole step down guitar. You've got the Mellotron on Strawberry Fields. Just like basically any song that we've been talking about, you can pick it and it starts in a completely different way. And so um, that that to me is probably the most distinctive part. There, there are some exceptions. There are some other songs where like like something to me for for whatever reason my favorite part of something is not the guitar solo it's not the opening drum fill paul plays this one particular line on the bass um when the verse comes back around and they're doing the verse in harmony uh where he's doing this doom do 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 that he plays every time but then this time he goes do 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 That like it would be gratuitous if anybody else played it at any other moment in that song, but like that to me is just like the greatest spot in something. And then and then also the bass moment in Everybody's Got Something to Hide Except for Me and My Monkey um, is another one of my all-time favorites where the bass comes in double track uh, after the uh, during the come ons. But again, everybody's got something to hide. It's got that bum ba bum bum that drum thing at the intro with the ascending guitar triads and it's like one second and you know what the song is so there's there are moments in the insides that i like but it's always the the first like bar of the song to me is just one of the most amazing things they did yeah i really love those ones too and i just i love paul's octave slides on the bass um it's just i think it's just so signature paul Mm -hmm. tomo what about you yeah i I, a lot of things i agree with josh like uh, their songs just first couple of seconds, just one note beginning, and just, you know, who they are, what song they're playing, and so much impact. And then that really brings the memory, and that brings to the entire song, you know. To me, like, see, I was, you know, I told you, I listened to a lot of um, compilation album, and after that, I think that'll be it's just the piano intro, and then like high hertz and the parts and little echo you know delay or like that and then then the guitar solo and just so much um that actually that guitar solo really influenced me because it's a melody and really following the chords but again once you start talking you can stop so many great songs (laughs) you know and and paul's bass it just just little things, like not technical, but just so melodic. And um, they are just good at it, finding their own sound, you know? So amazing. Um, I think my favorite thing about Beatles songs is that 
there's often just little moments that happen, a bit like what you guys have been describing already, which just happen once. And then, then therefore, you're kind of waiting for it the whole song. You're like, here it comes, this is my favourite bit. And it's so fleeting, but it's all those little moments that add up and create such a unique listen. And it's not like they've copied and pasted um, verse one, okay, verse two will be the same as verse one, et cetera, et cetera, bridge, outro, done. So every song has its own character, its own journey, just little quirks. Like my favorite, second favorite Beatles song is Hey Bulldog. And just some of the just silly little like lyrical moments and sound effects. What do you say? Every time I'm just like, yes, there it is, great. And it's just you like, gets you excited. Yeah, I, I think that, uh... I, I really like you, you pointing out just the little moments and the things that happen once. Like the Beatles were such masters of hooks and hooks aren't just great, like great choruses. You know, sometimes a hook is like a hook is anything from a song that like once you've heard it, you can't you can't not like kind of anticipate it because, you know, it's it's like an mm. it's exciting for us to hear something that only happens once in a song. And it's in, it's increasingly rare yeah. in the world of like pop production to only have something happen once because I think many producers would 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 want to say like no no like it's going to sound like a mistake or whatever, but for the Beatles sometimes it was a mistake and they just left it in, uh, and that's extremely compelling a lot of the time you know and then sometimes it's a deliberate choice, um, it happens twice in the song I guess but like on um, Good Morning Good Morning where there's like the bar of I guess ten on the the verse that is like such a silly thing to put there but it's my favorite part of the whole song um so yeah those there's just hooks hooks absolutely everywhere even if it's a one-off the hooks yeah and then the day tripper that riff if i do gig at least i play that once and somewhere because that's something that it works you know blues and funk funk riff and, and, and then just transfer also actually when i teach guitar some riff i teach that riff so that any fingering any strings if you can play that real riff brings you next level of improvisation <laughs> you know and then and then you know city but a lot of songs you know pop band rock blues band always 12 bars you know or aaba everything fits but beatles always has two bars or three uh, I like that just because I, I tell Berkeley students that's what you have to do. Don't think about theory or rules because it sounds good and leave it, you know? Definitely. <laughs> yeah, just on what Tomo was saying there, I, the, it's almost like the way that the Beatles broke st traditional structures like eight bar forms, 12 bar forms, it's like hidden in plain sight because for so many years you're listening to these songs and they feel so natural and yet you go to learn it. I think it's yesterday. It was like such a well, like a perfectly balanced song. And yet it's not like, okay, it's like, I imagine it would be 16 bars and then maybe a middle eight or eight bars. I think it's 13 bars of the A section, but it feels perfect. And it it just shows that you don't need to gravitate towards these familiar, um, you know, forms like 16 bars, 12 bar blues, all that sort of stuff. That's true, yeah. <laughs> That's so interesting. Why do you think that that worked for them? Was it like something about having ignorance when it came to music theory that just made it seem more natural so i i think my guess is i think they don't use manuscript paper you know always writing four bars or you know just they're just playing and then singing and then just whatever feel good they just follow it and then they just decide that way i think 
Because, see, I teach music, so I understand. Sometimes if you learn so much forms, of course you have to learn form, 12-bar blues, you know, some, you know, 24-bar, whatever. But then if you learn too much, then you almost like immediately you think you have to be staying in form. Yeah, so even my original song, that's the fear of staying in form, you know. So, uh, you know, one of my songs, it's, it's definitely not fits like a regular form because almost like one form has bridging, you know, or sometimes A section and B section a little longer. And that's, I think, slight influence from not afraid to go for it, you know? That's great. Yeah, if I if I were to guess, I would I would say that I mean there are definitely some cases where they're trying to be playful with expectations, but I think in most cases they just weren't thinking at all about uh, structure and form yeah. and things like that. I played for a long time um, with in a duo with a guy who grew up in North Carolina, listening to a lot of um, traditional folk music like Doc Watson and people like that. And when he would write songs, uh, there there are conventions around that uh, North Carolina folk bluegrass tradition. That it's entirely, you know, oral. There's n nothing is ever written down, so it's just understood that sometimes there'll be a bar of two that'll like go at the end of a chorus, or like you can just vamp for an indefinite number of bars between the two, between verses, like take as long as the singer needs, you know. And that's just like, and so he would write things like that, and then we would hire other players to come in on the gigs, and they would be like, "God, these songs are so complicated," and it's just like, "No, no, they're not complicated. It's just just listen for it," you know. And I I think that's kind of the if I were to guess, that's, I'd say that's the approach they were just taking there. Thank you for listening to part one of this amazing roundtable discussion about the Beatles with David Bennett, Tomo Fujita, and Josh Turner. The links to their YouTube and music channels can be found in the podcast description. And if you want to be notified for part two of this conversation, which is where I think things get really interesting, subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen. Thank you for listening, and I will see you next week.